from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. In this week's edition, Silicon Valley teams up on sustainable fashion, delivering employee engagement at DHL and Toyota, the vital role of women in sustainability, and turning Zika mosquitoes into cookies? It's all about just desserts this week on 350. This episode is sponsored by NRG, where the best energy approach is the right energy approach. As a nation's most diverse wholesale and retail energy generator, NRG is uniquely suited to guide customers to the solution best suited for them. For more information, please visit nrg.com slash greenbiz. It's April 28th, 2017. Welcome to this week's edition of GreenBiz 350. I'm Joel McCower. With me is GreenBiz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Wow, Heather, it's a, I just I couldn't help but notice that I said a new title. You did, and you did. You gave me that new title. Thank you, Joel. Well, thank you. We were very <laughs> excited to have you step up, and uh, I guess we'll just call it a promotion. But but just really in a key role, um, not just as as in doing what you've been doing so amazingly and, and writing stories and hosting co-hosting podcasts and. And being on stage at our events, and uh, but now really helping to guide the the GreenBiz editorial uh, strategy, and um, just uh, you, you know, as as you know, I'm not sure everybody else does that. Uh, you've been filling in as 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 managing editor while uh, our uh, regular managing editor Elsa Wenzel has been on maternity leave, and just uh, really helping drive the team in so many great ways. So yes, you are now well, you have been, but you are now the editorial director and. And congratulations, Heather. Great, great work. Thank you so much. Excited, excited, excited. Good. Well, this uh, has been quite a busy last seven, eight days. I mean, it's been the series conference here in the Bay Area. You were at a, a Bloomberg event uh, in New York. I was at Earth Day, Texas. Um, uh, I uh, did something uh, this week at the Global Footprint Network, a session on uh, unleashing data for sustainability. Wow, and we're going to have some of this uh, coming up in this episode. Um, what was what was going on? And I mean, you're going to talk a little bit more about it. But how was Bloomberg event? What was it? Well, so it was the um, the new energy finance and uh, summit, if you will, the, the the summit they had on the future of energy, and it was a great um, conference. Uh, two really compelling sessions. Um, Mike Bloomberg was there hawking his new book, right, with uh, Carl Pope, but uh, the climate of hope and. Um, I think what struck me, and I think you're going to hear a lot more about this, is the sort of um, uh, empowerment of the local voice in in the clean energy transition. You know, especially with the lack of leadership from the the Trump administration on on meaningful policy, and actually at the federal level for for a long time. But we we don't have a national policy. But in any event, it was they they were there talking up the new book. I have to tell you the body language <laughs> when uh, when there was a question to ask about um, uh, the the Trump administration's policy. The body language on Mr. Bloomberg was quite interesting. <laughs> very shut off, uh, very stiff. But um, he believes and and optimistically that um, cities and communities and businesses will be pushing this. So um, lots of exciting things in that book, Climate of Hope, and we're going to have an excerpt on Saturday. And the co-author, Carl Pope, Carl Pope for, for yeah. former uh, head of the Sierra Club, uh, mm -hmm. was at the series conference in San Francisco, um, signing copies and, and talking, mm -hmm. talking that up. And, you know, the series was, uh, you know, I think started to see the uh, a little bit of a turning point in in the voice here, and and I and I like to think that we actually started this at at our Green Biz event in February in Phoenix, where uh, you know the, after all the hand wringing uh, after the election, and 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 still to some extent, starting to really see businesses say, you know what, this is on us. We've got this. Mm -hmm. We can do this. And yeah. you know, talk about climate of hope. Uh, that was prevalent uh, at, at series. That the hand wringing is there. It hasn't gone away but it's it's um not uh it's not as, as panicky there's, there's just a feeling that 
You know, so much of what's happening in the marketplace around renewable energy, so much of what's happening uh, in the world of environmental social governance uh, in, in the publicly, among pub publicly traded companies and the, the, the organizations, the rating agencies, and how that's starting to happen and, and really affect companies and how companies are paying more attention. It's so much of this, it's not that we don't need regulations, it's not that we don't mm -hmm. need the, the, you know, the governmental hand in some of these things. But uh, it's feeling a little more hopeful. Yeah, the only thing that gave me pause, Joel, at the Bloomberg conference was that Rick Perry, the, the Secretary of Energy for the United States, also gave an address there. And um, in, in the Q&A afterwards, um, he was asked directly if he would um, uh, interfere with any of the state-level action. And there is the hint and implication that um, that his administration may insert itself in in some of what's going on. If the policies at the state level do not uh, meet national security interests, so he's positioning it as a, um, a national security uh, policy rather than an energy policy. Well, yeah, we'll is, see. I suppose we'll see. This is a challenge. I mean, uh, Rick Perry was also at Earth Day Texas, as was Scott Pruitt, the EPA administrator. Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I saw Pruitt. I didn't see Perry, but I I did, I did see Pruitt. It was kind of interesting. Um, I mean, first of all, Earth Day Texas is kind of interesting. This is a, a, an event uh, put on by a businessman and philanthropist, Trammell Crow, mm -hmm. um, who founded Earth Day Texas in 2011. And it's, it's the, really the biggest Earth Day event, certainly in the United States. Uh, over the weekend, 100,000 people attended wow. the event at the Texas State Fairgrounds. This is where the Cotton Bowl is. And 900 exhibitors, uh, 260 speakers. And what seemed like, you know, 260 more side events going on around it. I, I, uh, my co-authors and I uh, keynoted one of those. It was actually a banquet that Trammell puts on for uh, some of his uh, well-heeled Texas buddies. Um, mm -hmm. um, and um, it's just it's just a really interesting event. But in that event, uh, as I said, Scott Pruitt came and spoke, and it was actually uh, some intrigue around it because they didn't announce it exactly when and where or even if till a couple of hours beforehand. The room, the small auditorium where it was held, uh, only had about you know a few dozen people in it, fifty maybe. I don't know. But what was interesting, and, and Pruitt, he did a conversation with Texas Railroad Railroad Commissioner uh, Ryan Sitton, who himself is another regulator uh, in Texas. The conversation was twenty-two minutes long, and Pruitt was interrupted four times by people who stood up in the audience and just started screaming. But <laughs> what was interesting about that is that these this was not Code Pink, this was not Greenpeace. These were uh, adult, middle-aged, even old, you know, retired almost, uh, some, a couple of them by, you know, at least visibly, um, uh, Texas, uh, you know, men and women who, uh, one of them started, a woman started screaming about the Dallas air quality. One gentleman, uh, you know, in a, in a suit and a vest and a mustache and, you know, gray hair and silver hair and, you know, started just still yelling at him saying, you're a monster. And this was, this was not a happy moment, although, you know, Pruitt seems to be used to this kind of thing, and and it was seemed relatively non nonplussed. But I was just struck um, that this that that you know real Americans keep in this is Texas, this is not, and these were not you know tree huggers, just not happy with this. And the, the level of you know when you get out of the the coast where you and I live, the mm -hmm. bubbles perhaps in our blue states, um, this is. Um, uh, it just was really, really interesting to watch. Well, Texas is the biggest wind state and has more wind than a couple of, of pretty high-profile countries. So I think that was probably the other factor, yeah. right? They've, it's an economic thing there, too. Yeah. Thank you, former Governor Rick Berry. Yes. Well, that's uh, a lot of setup before we really get into the Week in Review. Well, we ended with Earth Day. Let's start with it. Uh, go right back to that. Uh, as I wandered through the the, the halls of these, uh, at least two, if not three, I lost track. Massive uh, exhibition halls. I happened on somebody who I just uh, know and had and really admire. A guy called Pliny Fisk, actually Pliny Fisk the Third. Um, 
<laughs> Pliny is one of these people who is just um, an amazing visionary who isn't as widely known as he should be. He's co-founder and co-director of the Center for Maximum Potential Building Systems. It's a bit of a mouthful. Center for Maximum Potential Building Systems. It's a it's a sustainable design and non uh, and planning nonprofit that he co-founded uh, over 40 years ago, 1975, based in Austin, Texas. He also teaches at Texas A&M, and uh, he's just one of these big thinkers who's who has really looking at, at, at how do you create low building, low, low cost building systems? How do you create innovative materials that are low carbon or carbon sequestering uh, and so many other innovations? Um, I, he was showing these uh, several different kinds of concrete substitutes that are made from waste materials. One was maced with, with brine, which is salt water, as opposed to using fresh water. And, and, and all of them were made with much more abundant and, and, and as I said, waste materials um, that you know have the potential to replace Portland cement, which I think many people know is extremely energy intensive. One of the is responsible for several, two or three, or I forget how many percent of greenhouse gas emissions globally. And, um, you know, we need to find new kinds of substitutes and substitutes that can sequester waste, sequester carbon and other greenhouse gases is really interesting. But as we walked, as I walked through this exhibit and spent some time with, with Plenty and he was, you know, just fascinating to listen to. I love listening to him. I could spend a day or two just hearing all the things he's working on. I couldn't help but notice the mosquito cookies. So this is something, and I asked him to talk about it, but this is basically a way to, to uh, if you think about the Zika carrying mosquitoes and other, and, and other disease-bearing insects, um, that what do we do? We spray them with pesticides and you know, try to deal with that, and not always successfully. He came up with a really innovative way to actually capture them, turn them into food for farm animals, and, and including aquaculture, uh, you know, farmed fish. Um, anyway, here's our conversation. So I'm here on the floor of Earth Day, Texas, and I'm talking to Pliny Fisk, who's the founder of the Center for Maximum Potential Building Systems in Austin, Texas. And, and Pliny, uh, I mean, to talk about what you do is a, is a whole show in and of itself, but there's one thing in particular that really caught my imagination, and it has to do with mosquitoes. Well, talk to me about how you're thinking differently about mosquitoes. Well, you know, we're at this sort of very interesting juncture in the world where we go and slam the problem and hit it with our old techniques of chemicals or what might be worse is DNA changing because we don't know what the predictability of that is. There's a, we found a lot of money going into that and nothing going into an ecologically sensible way of getting the mosquito into the food chain because we looked at this crazy coincidence of, you know, where is hunger in the world? Where is vector disease? Now, they have nothing directly have to do with each other, but it is unbelievable spatially. Wouldn't it be interesting to get the mosquito into either an aquatic food chain or a land-based food chain? So we have this trap that can start small, is produced at mammoth quantities, gets the smell of people inside, gets the glow of myceliums, on the inside surface, has the mycelians producing the CO2 that simulates humans. So we got, you know. So, 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 so let me understand this. You're, you're looking at the, 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 the same kind of mosquitoes that carry the Zika virus, and instead of getting rid of them by spraying them and doing all the things that we typically do, you're looking at how do we attract them and bring them, concentrate them in effect, to what end? To use them. To use mosquitoes. I mean, ecosystems are meant to be used at all levels by all living creatures. And it's one of these things where you wipe out something instead of going and saying, what is the resource way of thinking about that? So, as I so, so how, do, how do we use mosquitoes? Well, I mean, there are two different ways. I have my, what I call my mosquito cookie. So my mosquito cookie has... This is literally a cookie. I mean, not a human cookie, but it's it's an edible kind of cookie. It's it's edible by chickens and by birds and ducks and so on, and it attracts and it sticks the mosquito into it. 
and it's sort of, you know, has some seed base and it has some smelly base to it because there's some plants, you crush the roots and they happen to smell exactly like human armpits and all kinds of weird things. So so you've made a cookie, just to get this straight, yeah. made a cookie that itself attracts mosquitoes, so they then, it's like flypaper, they lodge into the cookie, and then how do you use the cookie? Obviously not for humans. Well, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of like the old chicken tractor, right? You take this chicken thing along and you put it down where you have food and the chickens eat, and then you move it. In this case, it's a little cover that goes over a chicken cookie, and you get all the doggone mosquitoes and this, that, and the other thing in there and attract it in this trap. So it's a physical shape. And there's all these things within it that helps attract. But then you move it. And you make another cookie. And then you move it again, make another cookie. So your backyard is filled with the mosquito cookies. And then the cookies are, uh, food. They're, they're food for, for birds, for wildlife, for, uh, uh, for, yeah. for chickens. Is this more nutritious? What would this be replacing uh, that chickens already eat? Well, it would be a lot of what they already eat, but it concentrates and gets rid of our so-called problem, uses that problem as a resource, gets us healthier, gets them healthier, gets food into our system as humans. But the other one is fish, because the fish ecosystem is you know, been known for a long time with mosquito fish and so on, but mosquito fish are not very edible. So you go a little bit of research and you realize, my goodness, there are a lot of fish that eat mosquito larvae. Each mosquito plants up to 300 eggs, every mosquito. So you begin to look at the biomass, you know, increase and mathematically what's going on here, and you say, humongous mass of insects being put into a good use for humans into their food chain to, to handle, you know, maybe a portion of a humongous problem called hunger. So how do you get the, uh, uh, the you use the cookies to get the mosquitoes to the, to the birds, to the chicken and, and other fowl. How do you get the mosquitoes to the fish? It's a, it's a more of a, of a floating cookie, very similar. So we adapt to the water and the aquatic environment. And, you know, it's one of these things where you don't have to go all the way to do all this stuff. It can be, you know, a regular thing in your backyard that's attractive. And, you know, you get rid of mosquitoes, but you don't get rid of them with stupid ways. And this has been used by other people. We haven't developed the basic concept, but what we are developing is a modular way of thinking about it and also a high production way of thinking about it where this stuff becomes sprayed on, the mycelium's become sprayed on, People do this with paper, they do it with this. So we're borrowing from a lot of previous knowledge and bring it together to address this particular issue. I love this. So you're basically doing what uh, birds and fish do naturally, little human help to exactly. concentrate it. In the meantime, eliminating a significant uh, health risk for humans. You I, the got it. Center for Maximum Potential Building Service Systems in Austin, Texas. Here's the founder, Plenty Fisk. Thanks so much, Plenty. Thank you, sir. I love it. Okay, Joel, so do you call that the March of Progress or what? <laughs> I'm not so sure. <laughs> it's very cool. Um, is it fit for human consumption? <laughs> uh, you know, that's a good question. I don't know whether people could actually eat this. It's certainly not intended for human consumption. It may be actually a protein-rich kind of thing, but I don't think that's – I know that's not what, uh, what, what Pliny and his team have, have intended this for. But, uh, you know, there is, a, there is this movement, as, as you know, and we've, we've talked about before, of, of, of doing what it, billions of people already do around the world, which is, you know, finding protein in insects. But that's not what's going on here. This is a way of, of, of solving one problem, spraying of pesticides, and another problem of, of disease-borne insects and turning them into uh, uh, food, to grow the food that we, uh, to grow other food that we do in fact want to eat. So as you said, the March of Progress. But yes. speaking of marches, this weekend, <laughs> yeah, there's more to come. In fact, last week was the Science March, and this is the March for Science. This is the People's Climate March is coming up, um, well, tomorrow, Saturday the 29th uh, in um, Washington, D.C., and around the U.S. And, and maybe around the world. I haven't really tuned in what's going on. But mm -hmm. I've been watching a conversation taking place uh, about the march, uh, this weekend's march, among a number of business organizations that are mobilizing 
Um, and this is, you know, BSR and series and the B team, uh, advanced energy economy, the corporate eco forum, um, and uh, future 500 and, and a bunch of others that are, are mobilizing and, and looking at how do we create a common uh, and solid voice. So we're at WBCSD, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. And so uh, I, I noted that um, they will be mobilizing uh, at 11 o'clock at John Marshall Park. Which they, that's what they're going to be doing. They're going to have their own um, pre-March rally in conjunction with the uh, Climate Reality Project. There'll be speeches by Al Gore, Richard Branson, and others. But in the run-up to this, I talked to my friend Leah Seligman. She runs the B-Team's climate change efforts. She's, her title is Director of the Net Zero Initiative. She's been at the forefront of trying to mobilize, you know, get this business mobilization as part of the People's Climate March. And she gave me a little preview of what's coming up. So Leah, first of all, what is the business community doing in terms of coming together for this march? Is there a special business contingent that's forming? So there isn't a special contingent, but there is a large amount of people from the business community that are coming together and will be joining into the other contingents of, of the march. And our contingent, where we'll be marching together, and we hope that everybody that's listening comes as well, is the Defenders of Truth contingent. Um, this is an interesting group. There's, there's scientists, there's community members. Um, the reason that we're putting business in with this group is because we believe that there is a false narrative that climate action is bad for business. And we're standing up to counter that narrative because we see acting on climate as one of the biggest business opportunities of, of the century. So tell me a little, bit, a little bit about what's going to be happening. I understand you're teaming up uh, Al Gore and Richard Branson and others. Oh, give us a little of the flavor of what to expect. So the People's Climate March is made up of organizations across the climate movement. And you'll have the frontline communities, the unions, the NGOs, government, everyone coming out. Uh, and our contingent uh, is lucky that we have a couple of really interesting, notable speakers that will be joining us. Two of our B-team leaders, Richard Branson and Sharon Burrow, uh, the General Secretary of the ITUC, will be leading our, our group, and we will be joining up with the Climate Reality uh, Project contingent to, to march together uh, on, on April 29th. And do you have an idea how many people to expect? Uh, the march is targeting 100,000 people and has a good plan on track to get that many people out in D.C., and our group will probably be about 500 people that will start together um, and join the march together. So what are the key messages that you're uh, planning to put out there? Obviously, the business needs to step up, but t take us a little bit at a level or two deeper. The overarching message is that business supports climate action. And we'll be really focusing on a positive message of this is a great business opportunity. There are over 3 million people already employed in the United States um, with clean energy and other um, low-carbon solutions. We have a great investment story around the, the you know, growing acquisitions, I think up 17% from last year, acquisitions in clean energy, and tremendous amounts of innovation happening every day. And we would like to urge politicians around the world including in the United States, to, to really focus on enabling this transition to a low-carbon future, because that is where the future jobs are. That's where the future investment is, and that's where our future economy is. And holding on to things that powered our economy in the past is not going to get us there. And so we're really, um, our message is strong and clear that business supports climate action, that we support politicians that support climate action, and we're, we're all in on the future. Is there a specific agenda in terms of uh, specific bills or things? Obviously, not, you know, not backing out of Paris would be one, and uh, retaining a lot of the, uh, the Clean Power Plan and things like Energy Star and other things that already exist. But is there an actual uh, list of wants, demands, requests, or whatever? So for, for the March itself, it's a really big tent event. So there isn't a specific list of policy asks that everyone, um, as you can imagine, it's a pretty diverse group of stakeholders um, that everyone is behind and, and shouting for. Um, for the business community, Paris is 
number one on our list. We worked really hard to get Paris. That framework provides a goalpost that business needs to be able to innovate and push forward and understand that there'll be some um, some regulatory certainty in the, in the trajectory. At the next level down outside of the international arena, there are a number of policies that that are very helpful to achieving those goals. Uh, but what we we really want to commit to is is not necessarily a specific action, but the fact that we can grow business um, and radically reduce emissions. And, and that that's the push that we want to do from a policy perspective, whether it's the clean power plan or other levers that can help the United States get there. Um, we want to demonstrate that the business community is supportive of that and pushing forward. I keep hearing that there is some core of Republican members of Congress, I don't know if it's five or 50 or more, that believe that climate is an urgent issue and would like to be part of the solutions, but need some kind of political cover to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's the business uh, community's opportunity, responsibility in creating that political cover? I think the business um, community has a tremendous opportunity to to push for this and to create the cover, just like we did in the lead up to Paris, where the business community sent a clear, strong message that business wants governments to act on climate. We need to do that again and redouble our efforts because we are in a moment in time when there is a plethora of misinformation going on. But we have we have passed the tipping point in the climate space where we know that. Um, human activity is contributing to greenhouse gas emissions. We know that there is a business opportunity, and we know that there is tremendous risk to our supply chains and value chains if we do not act right now. So continuing to send that message is absolutely first and foremost. Um, and you'll see examples of, of how this is coming forward. Um, the B team was part of the letter that Series and WWF put out that has over a thousand companies signed on to support a low carbon USA. Um, and this is just one example of the ways that business can stand up to support climate action and provide the political cover to create political will. So how will you know if you're successful in the sense of that what happens at the March this weekend is exactly what you wanted to see happen. Will there be some something outcome specific or will it just be a show of force? So I think first, I think a show of force actually is a really important outcome from this. But the other piece that will demonstrate success is new and likely allies, allies in this space. I think that the climate movement, like many, um, becomes siloed. And this is an opportunity for us to reach across the different silos of of people standing up and organizing around climate to to demonstrate that there are holistic solutions that support all of our needs. You can look at climate from a community perspective, a business perspective, a labor perspective, um, an advocacy perspective, and, and see different angles for entering this conversation. But the solutions are going to emerge out of the, the work that happens between all of these groups. And that is what is so important and the reason the B team is supporting the, the People's Climate March is because we see this as a really important moment for us all to stand up together and demonstrate how, um, not just how critical climate action is, but how much support there is for it. And it's a culmination. You'll have seen this last week at the Earth Day marches and the science, March for Science. That was a kickoff of a week of action around climate and science that will culminate in this March. And so looking across the full week of activities, you see people in very unlikely roles coming together to um, to send a clear message that climate is a priority and that if we ignore it, there is risk. And if we go after this, there's great opportunity. And it continues on Monday, too. Isn't there a Business and Climate Day on the Hill where uh, you and a lot of other groups are going to be visiting members of Congress? There is. I am actually, unfortunately, not going to be there, but there is going to be a fantastic day 
um, on the Hill. And it's one of, of a few days that have been organized to really demonstrate how business business is supporting this uh, this movement. So, um, yeah, no, it, it's it should not be seen as as the end on the the twenty first, but the beginning of of a larger set of actions that businesses can can make in solidarity with other communities impacted by climate. Well, we'll look forward to seeing what happens. Uh, have fun, be careful out there. Leah Seligman, director of Net Zero by twenty fifty at the B Team. Thank you, Leah. Hopefully, we'll see one of the people's climate marches this weekend. But finally, want to we can review. Want to end with a, another segment? We ran one a couple weeks ago uh, of my interview with Paul Hawken about his uh, new book, uh, Drawdown, which is this looking at the hundred or so solutions that could actually reverse climate change. And what came out of that are a number of solutions that involved specifically women. Well, I think that, I mean, I think women have been inclined um, to be involved and, 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 and actually since last November have been even more involved. So I'm, I'd love, love to hear more. Um, and I just, I feel like, uh, well, I mean, we've, we've seen a lot of data about how women are most negatively impacted by climate change. So they're also being the loudest about um, how to prevent it. Yeah, and and a lot of uh, it's not just the activism. A lot of it is is solutions that mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, like educating women and girls, yeah. and 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 Absolutely. actually showing and measuring uh, what um, uh, what's possible in terms of reducing greenhouse gases, reducing yeah. uh, and reversing climate change. I mean, for just in the book, the authors explain uh, as a quote: due to existing inequalities, women and girls are disproportionately vulnerable to right. the impacts of, of, of global warming from disease to natural disaster. At the same time, women and girls are pivotal to addressing global mm-hmm. warming successfully and to humanity's overall resilience. And as the book shows, uh, suppression and marginalization around gender lines actually hurts everyone where equity is better for all. Um, and the solutions show that enhancing the rights and well-being of women and girls could improve the future of life on this planet. Uh, so I, in my interview with Paul for the article that I wrote a couple weeks ago, um, here's what Paul had to say about women and girls. There were a number of parts of the book that had specifically to do with women. Um, yeah. What, what's your takeaway from all of that? Well, we that's another one where we were surprised. I had known from... Peter and Jennifer Buffett at the Novo Foundation, and from the work that Paul Allen and Vulcan had done uh, had done uh, on the girl effect and other literature about educating girls, the, the impact is quite significant in just a, a myriad ways. And one of them, of course, is on reproduction. So that was in there from early on. Educating girls, I put that one into the basket, and uh, and then we had family planning, which is of course logical and, and obvious. They both are family planning um, in terms of outcome, which is you have the UN population figures for 2050 now, and the high is 10.8, and the median is 9.7 billion, uh, and there's a low which no one really <clears throat> takes for seriously anymore. But the difference is 1.1 billion, and the difference between the high and the median is really family planning. Uh, there's two pathways there. One to educate girls so that they stay in school and become a woman on their terms and not on the terms of their culture uh, when they're 13 and, and and they have less children than the replacement rate if they have a 10th grade or higher education. And then you have family planning clinics, which gives women a chance for reproductive health and support and choice. And and you put those two together and you have 119.6 gigatons of avoided emissions. Uh, I don't want to reduce women to avoided emissions, but I mean, that's the carbon impact of 1.1 billion less people in 2050. And um, and if you put those two together, the, the girls, educating girls is number six and family planning is number seven. We didn't really know how to divide that 119.6. How do we attribute to educating girls and to women? So we just divide it down the middle, 59.6 gigatons per. But you you told them up, and that the number that's the number one solution is empowering girls and women for climate change for addressing global warming. And it and again that was like we were surprised and delighted, but surprised as well. What did you learn about the cost 
of doing all these things that lead to drawdown in terms of, was it a lot more than you expected, a lot less than you expected, and, and where this money might come from? Is it is it such that it is so profitable that the private sector could or should be investing in these things because there's a, a decent rate of return just in pure business terms? Or is this a lot of uh, international development, philanthropy kinds of funding? Well, first of all, what, talk about the magnitude of the cost. And then second, maybe where you see it most likely coming from? Well, oftentimes we see the cost as first cost. So this is, you know, the first cost to do X or Y, you know, by whatever date in the world, you know, in the, in the future for the world. If, and we see these trillion, multi-trillion dollar numbers, which I'm sure are true. <clears throat> what we did, though, is we looked at the net cost, net first cost, which is, well, yeah, but what would you do if you didn't do this? Would you what your coal-fired plant, your combined gas cycle plant. I mean, in other words, we went against what you have. You have to do one thing or the other. So the alternative isn't whole first cost. It's the incremental or decremental first cost of the solutions we modeled. So that's how we did first cost. And that is a lot less than, than, than total first cost, which pretends that you wouldn't have to spend the money on something else to begin with. And then same with savings. There's net savings in net operating savings, but again, it's against what you would have done otherwise or not done in, in some cases. And uh, and you do you do the total. You're talking about forty, fifty, sixty trillion dollars, you know, net um, cost. But you're also talking about the actual when you total everything up in the eighty solutions. The, the total cost to achieve drawdown is around a couple of dollars per person per year for thirty years. That's Global, the total. globally. Yeah, globally. Yeah, yeah. It's nothing because you have these extraordinary savings in 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 energy. I mean, trillions and trillions of dollars. You have it in in EVs. You know, so the the savings are massive in some areas, and some areas they're not. In some areas, you don't want to calculate it. Like we don't calculate the cost and savings from educating a girl. It's just offensive. And some in some areas like biochar, which is not high, sixty-two, I think, on the ranking, but still important. It's very, very difficult to calculate the the savings. You know, I mean, it's just impossible, really. So we don't. And so in some cases, we just don't have the numbers. Uh, or like in food, reduced food waste and and plant-rich diet are very, very significant solutions. But food costs around the world are so varied, and diets are varied, and uh, that there was, you know, we couldn't calculate the actual cost or, or savings. We just could calculate the impact. What's the message in drawdown for the mainstream corporate community? I think it's a map of where we are going, as opposed to we're saying this is where we ought to go. Every one of those solutions is scaling, so it's not a question of. You should scale this. <laughs> I mean, we sh- we are scaling it, and we can accelerate that by our investments. Uh, some of these investments, like in terms of protecting forests, like tropical forests, which is extremely significant and important, is going to have to come from the public sector as much as the private, and from governments, uh, from the world as a whole, because these are global resources. They're not just resources in the Congo or Brazil. And uh, but in most cases, the opportunities are are significant in what we call the coming attractions, the 20 solutions that are incipient on the cusp, uh, just kind of rising above the horizon. The opportunities are extraordinary. Even one of the solutions, one of those coming attractions is already partnered with another one of those coming attractions and is raising money right now in the equity market to grow. Uh, and again, the book isn't even out yet. And our n- next book is going to be called D2. I call it D2, but it's Drawdown 2. But actually, it's 60 more coming attractions. You know, just they're just they're so brilliant. What's, what humanity is doing is brilliant, and 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 it makes you smile, and it's ingenious, and it's really again and again what you see is it's not biomimicry as such, but you see techniques or practices technologies depending on how you look at it but i mean that are really 
looking at living systems and then using the biological cycles, uh, trophic cascades, etc., as a way to alter environments for the better. And we talked about cost. You know, the one thing about what I what I see right now is that you know we've been very bad at costing externalities, and so hog farms in North Carolina get away with it. You know, so bacon's cheap and just ruining the water and the land, and people can't live near these you know hoggeries, piggeries, and whatever they are. I mean, no one's costing really externalities. Well, what we're seeing in the solutions is that actually we don't have a good way of of really seeing the savings from the positive externalities. In other words, we're just as bad as at the positive externalities as we are at the negative ones. And when we start to take that into consideration, sort of the cascading benefits and economically, and not to mention in health and otherwise, then the costs go down even further than we've calculated. has been one of the largest polluters in the world, second only to oil, according to less than a design magnet Eileen Fisher. It's hard to measure the global impact of the clothing retail industry, especially as the fast fashion phenomenon speeds up clothing production and demands ever more resources, while decreasing the longevity of the items in our closets. But here is a sample size of the industry's faux pas. According to World Resource Institute, 57% of cotton is grown in water-stressed areas, and there is no commercially viable textile recycling technique for the major fibers used in apparel. So one Silicon Valley accelerator thinks it's found a way to help scale. It's got the help of Caring, a major umbrella brand company in the fashion industry that happens to house several of the biggest names in the business, like Gucci, Saint Laurent, and Puma. Together, they are working to find and scale tech-savvy solutions that decrease fashion's footprint. I'm Heather Clancy, the Editorial Director of GreenBiz, and I'm joined by Associate Editor Anya Hallmeiser, who covered the new Fashion for Good Plug-and-Play Accelerator in a story this week. Welcome, Anya. Hi, Heather. Hi. So I guess the first thing I'd love to know is what is Fashion for Good, the Plug-and-Play Accelerator? And why did Caring and Plug and Play get involved together? The Fashion for Good Plug and Play Accelerator is a joint effort by Plug and Play, a major Silicon Valley accelerator program and investor that has helped launch big names like Dropbox, PayPal, and SoundHound. And Fashion for Good is the new organization launched this year that is aiming to transform the fashion industry. It's influenced, and uh, one of its founding members is Bill McDonough of Cradle to Cradle Certification fame. And it's also working with CNA. It's funded by CNA, a Dutch clothing design superstore. Think a Dutch version of H&M, for example. And through its CNA foundation, it gives grants to organizations that are researching and creating solutions for resource, waste, and labor issues in the fashion supply chain. Fashion for Good and CNA approached caring and plug and play um, to give the accelerator some participants who are deeply grounded in the fashion industry that's caring and in the investment space and accelerator space that's plug and play. And that fit in with caring's goal because they just launched a new sustainability strategy for 2025. And so it aligned with uh, one of its pillars, which is the desire to create um, a disruptive sustainability solutions for the industry. According to Caring and Plug and Play, they were looking for this kind of sustainability initiative. So Fashion for Good came to them at what they said was the right time. And here's Brad Sherman, founder and director of the Fashion for Good Plug and Play Accelerator, giving some deeper background on what happened. We've kind of juggled uh, the thought of being involved in sustainability, uh, being involved with uh, social and environmental impact. Uh, we've had, you know, a few other partners come by and, and kind of express interest in running this open innovation model with uh, sustainability as the key focus. 
Um, but it really wasn't until the, the CNA Foundation and, and the Fashion for Good team and, uh, approached us with this opportunity that we really saw fit and, and really needed to take that jump. So what motivated us most uh, uh, was just that, you know, we really didn't, we're technology, we're software investors uh, in Silicon Valley. So we, we weren't too aware of, uh, of the impact that, you know, the fashion and apparel industry had um, on the world. But as we started to, you know, begin our conversations, uh, learning about, you know, how it might be one of the leading uh, industrial polluters in the world, uh, uh, the amount that could be recycled that is just ending up in landfills, we realized we can be a part of the change. Uh, we have the channels, we have the resources, we have the ability to go out and find uh, the necessary early stage technologies that can actually be implemented and make a, make a difference and make a change for good. So uh, we, we, we jumped at the opportunity. Um, I think my, my, my other partner and I were on a plane the next day to fly to Amsterdam from Silicon Valley after we found out about the opportunity, uh, just so that we can uh, get in front of them and say, like, this is our model. We, we love the space. We, we really will do what it takes to, to be your partner. Okay, so what are some of the promising startups that are coming out of this accelerator? There were 12 startups chosen out of 20 finalists, and each were selected for either developing new raw materials that will reduce fashion's environmental impacts, alternative production methods to increase fabric's longevity, or new processes for closed-loop product lifestyles, so anything that involves a circular economy in textiles. Some of my favorites, personally, were Amadou, company that created a sort of leather from the skin of Amadou mushrooms, and I do hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. This is fabric durable enough to use for footwear and accessories, so hopefully we'll have an opportunity to phase out leather. Another cool company was Dropple. It repels watery and oily substances from fabric, so it's great for increasing durability. And of course, if you spill wine on yourself during a business dinner, <laughs> a company called Repack is trying to reduce the carbon footprint of e-commerce packaging. They have this audacious goal of 80% decarbonization. And Tersus is a company that uses recycled um, carbon dioxide fluid from industrial manufacturing, uses that as a solvent instead of water in in a laundry process. So it can be used at dry clean areas, um, laundromats. And here's Christian's Carlson's head of plug and flip play ventures, Amsterdam, detailing some of the solutions that they're incubating. You know, we, we see a lot of potential in all the startups. So I'm just giving a few examples from the first batch. Uh, when it comes to ICA Bremen, so, so what these guys have accomplished is actually pretty amazing uh, because currently, uh, one of one of the big one of the problems in the cotton industry is uh, people cheating when it comes to naming naming something natural cotton or or you know, and uh, when it actually when it, when it when it boils down to the cotton management industry, so I say Bremen have come up with a with a tra with a DNA tracer, they implement into into the uh, raw material and it can be traced all the way through the supply chain. Current DNA testing solutions do not work because during the whole bleaching and treatment processes of the materials, the DNA wears off. So at the end, uh, the end product has no DNA traceability left, you know, left. So there's no potential for that. So I see a Bremen solution allows to track the, the raw material, namely cotton in this case, so all the way through the supply chain. So uh, there are multiple benefits for that. Uh, so first of all, you know, it's uh, transparency. And second is uh, it's anti-counterfeiting. So brands can actually see if the apparel items they receive are legit, legit or if they're fake and, and all of that. Um, original repack, so it's definitely a quite in, innovative uh, business model and it's uh, it's quite interesting that nobody had come up with it. So it's, and it's, it's, and it's simple and actually genius the way I see it. Um, so original repack, they have come up with a, with a business model. They work with e-commerce platforms uh, where basically after the consumer receives the, their package with, their, uh, with what they ordered from the e-commerce store, they can fold fold the package and put it in a mailbox and it gets delivered back to original repack so they can reuse this packaging. When you account for mailing this packaging compared to just creating new packages, um, 
So at the end of the day, original repack can save up to uh, up to 80% of the carbon footprint when it comes to the pack, uh, packaging and e-commerce. And Sundar, obviously, as you mentioned, another great startup uh, is basically a digital platform that connects brands with textile manufacturers and suppliers, as well as all kinds of specialist services, you know, trim, dyeing, and all of that. So it makes it easier for designers to work on new ideas. Um, suppliers uh, or manufacturers can find way, new ways to sell their production. You know, uh, there's less inventory that's left over because currently a big problem in the fashion industry is that unused fabrics are simply burned. So imagine all that material goes to waste. It's, it's, it doesn't make sense at all. But, you know, it's quite wasteful. Um, so Sundar is addressing, these are one of the problems that Sundar is addressing and, you know, it helps enhance the supply chain transparency, potentially can make consumption of materials more effective as well. You know, Anya, I love that uh, mushroom example because I know that Dell is, uh, the computer company Dell has been using mushrooms for packaging. I don't know if you knew about that, but they, uh, mm-hmm. it's turned up in a, in a different um, application as well. Um, but one of the things that I know Dell has been having trouble with is scaling that solution. So I'm wondering, how are these solutions going to scale in the fashion industry? Can they? That, of course, remains to be seen as any accelerator will uh, launch the help launch the products, but what happens to them afterwards? Caring seems to think so, although, of course, they couldn't discuss which startups they think are most promising. But according to Marie-Claire DeVoe, Caring's uh, chief sustainability officer and head of international institutional affairs, she says that creating and launching disruptive innovation is part of the company's 2025 sustainability pillars. So it's more of a core business strategy than an add-on to the business. So they are really looking for these technologies that they can incorporate into the process of their um, manufacturing and distribution. So Marie Claire called plug and play the right proposal at the right time. This episode is sponsored by NRG, where sustainability takes many forms. From renewable approaches to reliable backup generation to cost-saving demand response programs. For more information, please visit nrg.com greenbiz. Joel, we've seen many, many businesses come out very publicly, if, if you will. Um, you were mentioning the People's Climate March and how... Um, how many business organizations are involved with that and getting out there front and center with signs and, and not being afraid to say who they're with. Um, you wrote a great piece um, this week about a new survey on employee activism and the high level finding that more workers at large companies are eager for their employers to do this, especially their CEOs, uh, right, to, get, to speak out up about environmental and social issues. Uh, I was even more intrigued <laughs> though, by the revelation that renewable energy was so high up on the list of, of items that, that these employees want their CEOs to talk about, even higher than immigration. Wow. I mean, that just the, the you know, the activism thing was cool. But when I saw that finding, I was just absolutely blown away. Yes. I mean, so this is, you know, what employees want their companies to step out on. It's, it remains to be seen. Uh, how much companies actually want to speak out or are willing to. Uh, and to your earlier point about all the businesses that are stepping forward, I mean, it's business groups. I named a bunch of business groups. There are relatively few companies and mm-hmm. even fewer CEOs yep. who are mm-hmm. active, actually mm-hmm. putting themselves out there. So, mm-hmm. uh, so this is a really interesting tension point where there's uh, the business groups are out there. The companies belong to these business groups. There's a uh, pressure by employees now, or at least a, a demonstration of, of of interest by employees in the company speaking out. And and it'll be interesting to see, you know, how and, and companies recognize that this does get tied to uh, attracting and retaining talent, particularly mm-hmm. uh, millennials, but not just them. Um, so it's it's just a, it's sort of a really interesting tension point right now. Well, and I, I just have to mention this particular CEO because he is an example of someone that is speaking up. Uh, Mark Benioff with Salesforce, absolutely hands down one of the most actively involved and speaks his mind um, about lots of social issues and environment. His, one of his, his environmental causes is oceans. Um, but I just have to give him props because 
that is a very much part of that culture of that company. And I think it's, it's, it's tremendously, um, important, um, as, as this movement moves forward. Um, you know, and I, and this whole thing got me thinking about, right. We talk a lot about, um, and, and our readership really worries about this, this one particular issue, right. They've got this corporate strategy, um, that they've built and they, they've obsessed over and they've put together. Now the big question, how to get employees fully committed to those goals, right. And, and, and sort of, this is the perpetual problem, um, and challenge, if you will, that, that corporate sustainability professionals face is they may not have direct control over, um, you know, what someone's doing and how do they in- inspire an employee to get involved, um, with, uh, with, with this, the program and to support it. I, I mean, I know this is just sort of management 101, right? <laughs> how do you get people to do things? But, but it's, it's quite, quite a big issue for, for us. And I know we, we, we focus a lot on great ideas around employee engagement all the time. Yeah, if you, I agree completely. If you get a bunch of companies in the room when you talk about what are the top five things you're grappling with as a as a senior environmental or sustainability executive, uh, somewhere in the top two or three is going to be employee engagement. How do you really engage people in this stuff and and, and activate them? And so this is not just the the uh, remit of the environmental department, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So along that, I mean, I try to ask this whenever I'm having an interview, and I, I spoke with two huge companies last month, uh, logistics giant um, DHL, right, from Germany, and automaker Toyota, about how they approach this. And I discovered, you know, so on the surface level, they're taking very different approaches, but they have very much the same objective, um, how to build thinking about sustainable business operations right into the corporate culture. And I, um, DHL has actually built training into its 2025 goals. By that time frame, the company has pledged to certify 80% of its employees as what it calls go green specialists. And these are people that um, are attuned to the need for env- environmental and climate protection. Now, I think what struck me even more is that is a lot of people. That is 500,000 people. Wow. Yeah. Um, the idea is to help them become grassroots generators of new ideas. And I asked Christoph Erhardt, DHL's Director of Corporate Communications and Responsibility, to describe the program. Here's what he had to say. We very much believe in the fact that our company makes a difference uh, by the people. Now, that sounds like a truism or a PR spin, whatever, but if you face the fact that we are a service company with 500,000 people, if we want to do something better, different, more effective, faster, whatsoever, it's never about a piece of technology. It's about sending a signal to 500,000. So it's very easy to say, let's send a, a signal to 500,000, even if you are a Nobel Prize winner in communications, uh, you easily fail in that task. Um, we have found a way to um, communicate with our um, internal audience um, in a way that we call that the certified process. That's how wider the word certified comes into play. And what we do is we train and certify every single of our 500,000 employees ranging from standards of who we are as a company, what our customer promise is, what our heritage is, uh, what fits our brand, what doesn't, um, and then escalating to more detailed uh, certification elements where we brief them on specific topics in order to provide them with the know-how that they need to do a good job, but also in order to provide them with the motivation that puts the small things they do in their day-to-day business um, into the larger perspective of what the company wants to achieve. Why is that important? Well, we have 500,000 people, most of them blue colors. They do very down-to-earth things. They scan, they drive, they load on conveyor belts, they unload uh, airplanes and so on. Um, in order for them to understand what their individual contribution is, for example, to a 2050 CO2 reduction target, you have to tell them in a very easy to be understood, uh, concrete way. And we do that in those certified training sessions, uh, one and a half days usually, done by the management. I'm a certified um, uh, facilitator 
Um, even the CEO of the company is a certified facilitator. Everyone trains everyone, so we learn from each other. Um, and to the specific target, there will be a Go Green certification module that we believe we can put through 80% of the workforce until 2025 so that people know, to give an example, if I am Joe Sixpack from Slippery Rocks in the right in the middle of nowhere, the way I drive my, my delivery uh, uh, car, um, how fast, how much I brake, how careful I am, has an impact on how the company will look like as against that target. So we, we connect between individual behavior and the larger common goal. Toyota's method of sharing ideas and building excitement for sustainable business innovation is very much driven by its Japanese parent organization. It embraces a concept called yokaten, and that literally means show, sharing knowledge of best practices. So it's a Japanese cultural thing. It's part, part of the Toyota way, right? Um, and it is something that every division embraces wholeheartedly across regional boundaries. Here's Kevin Butt, regional director of Toyota Motor North America, describing the process as it relates to sustainability. And we, you know, we have a, a process here at Toyota. It, it's called uh, yokaten, which is a Japanese word, but uh, that basically means to take a process that you find that works in any given operation, and then you move that to another like operation. So this this process was then adopted in our Indiana plant. So you know we keep you know we keep you know where we find something that works, we'd like to keep it moving and making sure that others are utilizing that same technology. So we don't have people that are trying to reinvent the wheel everywhere. And so we actually put a lot of these processes that we have uh, on a list and this list goes out to everyone. And then we say, all right, this worked here. Why haven't you implemented it at your facility? Or thank you for implementing it at your facility. We also have uh, at least once a year, sometimes twice, what we call our global environmental meeting where everything is brought to the table and, and shared. Look, we just did this. I did that. You know, and we share those things. And if if it's anything that uh, you know we feel is you know could be implemented immediately, then there's communication through the motherland, uh, Toyota Motor Corporation, and we we share that. They share it out to different regions. And quite frankly, I know all the people, my counterparts in the other region. So you know, we have phone calls all the time. Yeah, let me break that. Let me break that down. I have a quarterly meeting with all the regions folks here in North America, North Canada. I have a, re- a quarterly meeting. We have a lot of discussion there. Then once a year, I get together with all my other counterparts from the other regions of the world, and we have the same discussions. So it's kind of a, you know, I, my quarterly meetings roll up into meetings that I, the one meeting that I go to Japan, and we all sit around the big table and try to understand the different languages. Now, frankly, Joel, I'd love to hear more about how companies get their employees galvanized. I, I we're always looking for this. And um, hey, if you're listening and you're doing something unique, drop me an email at heather at greenbiz.com. Before we close out the podcast for this week, this week we will bid adieu to our talented podcast director, Soraya Melconi, and she's been with us for about oh, two years now, and and among other things, uh, she gave birth to this podcast and has directed all 73 episodes that we have created to date, and of course we'll keep going beyond this without her, although it'll be somewhat different. So Soraya, first of all, thank you. Thank you, Joel. And it's a great opportunity. What's, what's in store for you next? Um... I am throwing my entire life up in the air. <laughs> I am moving out of my apartment on Saturday, and then I have a flight to Germany on Wednesday. Um, and yeah, I'm going to uh, quench some wanderlust, I guess. Spoken <laughs> like a true millennial. I love it. Um, so to give us just a few parting thoughts about what you're going to take away from here in terms of you know, as you look back on this, what do you think you're going to remember? And or, and what have you learned along the way? Oh, my gosh. It's almost been two years, so a lot. Um, I was kind of looking through all the episodes and just thinking about, how, like, all of the different types of companies we've covered. Um, 
Our first episode had an astronaut in it. We had Van Jones on the second episode. We've had, yeah, hundreds of companies since then. And I think when I, I first started, I was a little bit cynical maybe about, you know, why a business would be talking about sustainability. Um, and after what, 73 episodes, you start seeing that this is something both serious, but there really is an opportunity there. There really is, you know, it's pathways for growth for these companies. Yeah, and so many possibilities. And uh, it's been part of your growth too. And uh, we will always bring that with us on this podcast and, and, and in the company. So thank you for that. And that is our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find the organizations, the stories and events we've mentioned in this episode. Thanks one more time to podcast director Soraya Melkonian. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Until next time, have a great day. This episode is sponsored by NRG, where the catalyst for an innovative energy solution is often a formidable challenge. From cost savings to reliability to sustainability, a real-world assessment is an ideal tool for moving forward. For more information, please visit nrg.com greenbiz.